Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, October the 23rd, 2022. What is it about heroic women, fictional or otherwise in war and in conflict? that brings out the best in writers, inspires them to invest their time in books about these women. Um, we've done a number of shows about that. A couple of weeks ago, I did a show with the best-selling writer, Leisha Cornwall, about a, a, a fictional British aristocrat, maybe a half-fictional British aristocrat. Uh, she has a new book out that summer in Berlin, British aristocrat based somehow on a combination of the Mitford sisters. It's not just um, British heroines who have caught our attention recently had Damien Lewis on the show, uh, a nonfiction book, Agent Josephine, about the heroic work of Josephine Baker in uh, the Second World War. Women don't necessarily fight on the front lines, but they're certainly inspirational figures. We're all, of course, familiar with Miss Moneypenny from the James Bond series mostly of movies, but of novels that uh, everybody has seen. And now we have a, a fictional, or semi-fictional at least, version of the heroism of Miss Moneypenny, more on her, making her the centre of the story rather than just um, uh, a walk-on actress. Uh, from my guest today, Christine Wells, she has uh, a new book out, One Woman's War, a novel of the real Miss Money Penny and Christine is joining us from Brisbane, Australia. Uh, Christine, welcome. You're uh, uh, you, you've done a lot of writing on female heroism in a fictional and perhaps non-fictional way. What was it about Miss Money Penny that um, inspired you to write this book, One Woman's War? Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Uh, with Miss Money Penny, it was really circumstance. I, uh, as a seven-year-old, saw my first James Bond movie and I was sort of hooked on spies from that time on. Uh, my father had been uh, working all week and we'd been with mum looking at the sites in Sydney and mum said, I'm going shopping, you take them today. <laughs> and instead of taking us to a museum or something, he took us to James Bond. Uh, so I had been interested in Ian Fleming's career because uh, obviously he worked in naval intelligence during World War II and that's where he as creator of the Bond novels came up with a lot of the inspiration for his books. But I was reading an article about the women around him and contrary to what you might expect because of the women he wrote as the Bond girl, uh, most of the women around him were very strong, clever, uh, witty women. And one of those women was Patty Bennett, or her real name was Victoire, but her, her nickname was Patty. And she just seemed like such a redoubtable kind of character. She seemed perfect for a heroine for one of my novels. And when I found out she was involved in Operation Mincemeat, she wasn't just a secretary at Naval Intelligence. She actually played an active part in a very eccentric wartime 
operation, uh, I had to know more about her. So she became the subject of One Woman's War. Fleming has a, a very bad reputation in terms of women, a cad, notorious womanizer, married to uh, Anne Fleming, um, uh, again, a sort of infamously unhappy marriage. Uh, what's your sense of Fleming? I mean, was he as bad as rumoured in terms of your research? Did he mistreat women? Maybe not all women, but many women. Oh, I think he did. Yes, undoubtedly. And there's no romantic involvement between him and Patty in the book. Uh, she famously said that she wasn't taken in by him because she was privy to the, his side of conversations when he was on the telephone to this woman and that woman and arranging all of his assignations. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that with men like that, there are two sides to them and I don't want to make him out to be any paragon in the personal sense but in a professional sense he was extremely effective and he was actually people say oh scoff that you know he wanted to be James Bond he was actually more important than a James Bond operative because he was the right-hand man to the director of naval intelligence John Gordon and so he was running around uh, he was masterminding operations. He was liaising between different committees because, of course, they had this committee and that committee for all of the different uh, services and they had to get everybody on board. And he was very good at railroading projects through and being diplomatic when it was required. But he was quite renowned for not uh, being subservient to anyone. He said the only person you were supposed to call sir god and the king so uh yeah he had that blend of being able to get on with the powers that be but also not being very subservient to anyone we're all very familiar as i said with the the burn films from the most recent with daniel craig the middle period with uh, uh, uh sean well not sean connery the middle period um and then, of course, the, the classic Bonds with Sean Connery. To, to what extent do you think Bond himself is based on a real-life figure? Well, I think Bond is partly Ian Fleming because he likes the finer things in life, and Ian Fleming certainly enjoyed those. He was a keen gambler, uh, high-stakes gambler. He liked good food and good wine and obviously the women. But the action part of it, uh, I think Dushko Popov was one of his models and Dushko appears in, in One Woman's War. He was a Serbian, quite an aristocratic figure, businessman, and he convinced the British that he would launder the Germans' money for them and get information from them. So what he did was say to the Germans, uh, you need to pay informants in the currency of the country they're in. Uh, I will change the Deutschmarks or the Reichmarks as they were then to the currency, British pounds, American dollars, what have you, for you and pay your informants. Well, of course, 
the British had rounded up all of the German informants. They'd either turned them or imprisoned them or perhaps executed them. Uh, so basically the Germans were funding MI6 operations by giving them all this money. So Popoff was sort of on the edge of discovery all of the time. He was working in Spain and Portugal. And, uh, and so he was really the Bond kind of figure uh, that uh, one of the, the men that Fleming would have based Bond on. We've done many books about feminist novels of one kind or another. One, for example, recently with Alison Fairbrother has written a novel based around the life of her father. Do you see this book, uh, your new book, One Woman's War, a novel of the real Miss Moneypenny, even though it's based on the fiction of and the real life of Ian Fleming as a feminist novel? I do in the sense that I think Patty is struggling her personal conflict is that she's struggling with the the difference between her life as a secretary in British Naval Intelligence. She uh, she had a lot of responsibility because women who were secretaries were often involved in higher level uh, work than their position would suggest that no, no women were ever really made officers in intelligence in those days. There, were, there was an, one exception I can think of, uh, even Vera Atkins, who was renowned to have been a bit of a spy mistress herself, was not given officer status for quite a long time. Uh, so she was dealing with exciting high-level operations and then she got married <laughs> and she had to leave. And so... I do explore a bit that that sensation of going from this very important work to then having to go to the domestic sphere. And I think a lot of women did go through that at the end of the war too. They'd been asked to step up and to do things that they never dreamed they would be able to do, much less be good at. And they they discovered a sense of purpose through that. And then after the war, it was, oh, no, back into the kitchen. All the men are coming back. You need to give up your jobs now. So I did explore that a bit. I mean, Patty is a real person and she actually did go back into domestic. You know, she had a baby very soon after. So uh, that, that was her choice. But um, I do look at this as a feminist novel and, and saying this is what women can do when they are called upon to do it, and, and they always could. And uh, it took a war to really change things. As I said earlier, Alicia uh, Cornwall based her novel, uh, the book uh, That Summer in Berlin on the Mitfords, this unusual uh, family of aristocratic family of uh, mostly girls. Uh, do you think that the aristocracy generated the kind of characters that you write in a book uh, better than the middle or the working classes? I More think the... Yeah, uh, the, the, the aristocracy certainly had more opportunities. They, the, especially with the uh, intelligence services that I write about, they deliberately employed people from the, the higher 
or the the aristocracy and the gentry because they thought they were the right sort of people. They were proven very wrong when uh, Kim Philby and and the Cambridge spies were un uncovered. You know, they put far too much trust in people just because of their social status. But uh, obviously, the the Midfords didn't have much education, but. Uh, many of the, I mean, Patty had been uh, educated at the Sorbonne in Paris. She'd done an architecture degree. So she was you know, highly intelligent and capable and educated. And I suppose I write about, I, uh, the women simply happen to be of that echelon that I write about. I wouldn't exclusively write about them but they just happen to be the ones who are often employed in these intelligence roles in Britain during World War II. Christine we also did a show with the writer Joya Diliberto on Coco Chanel she has a novel out Coco at the Ritz which imagines Coco Chanel's relationship with the Germans and particularly the, the German SS in your research and in your experience, did the Germans try to turn any British women? You talked about Philby before. Was there any attempt to turn any of the women that, that surrounded Fleming and the other figures in the British Secret Service? Did, were there any potential German or perhaps later in the Cold War Soviet spies? Yes, I, I think they did try very hard with the British, especially the British aristocracy and, and the Mitfords were a prime example of that. Uh, Hitler admired Britain and he probably wouldn't have given Britain the same treatment as some of the other European countries because he really wanted to form a bit of a coalition with them. So he was very keen to access the higher echelons of society and there was a Nazi party in Britain and uh, my character Friedel Gärtner who was actually Austrian by birth but living in London was approached before the war to spy for the the Germans because her brother-in-law happened to be the brother of the head of the secret service so uh, they probably thought they had a real in there uh, but Friedel, uh, as you will see in the book, she she ends up working for MI5 as a double agent, uh, and she was a very interesting character. She, I was able to get access to her file, and uh, her MI5 file, which is about 112 pages or so, and just the different versions of her that people saw. There was also a memoir by her friend Joan Miller called One Girl's War. Uh, my title didn't come from there but I, I thought afterwards, oh yes, I read that that book. Uh, so the the version Popoff who who actually had Friedel in his intelligence circuit, his view of her was that she was intelligent great at her job, very sexy, and, uh, you know, she'd been a nightclub singer and all of this. But some of the men at MI5 wrote her off as just this ditzy, good-time girl. And, in fact, she she often was rounded up with the ladies of the night because she was out after curfew and dressed very scantily. And, and in those days, the, the mantra was no complaining, no explaining. You'll see the magistrate in the morning and tell your story. So 
Uh, she actually had to be bailed out by her MI5 handlers uh, on a couple of occasions. But uh, she, she, her role was to look at the fifth column activity that was happening in Britain and to try to get close to the Nazi leaders. There were many uh, noble dukes and so forth uh, because, of course, they they were sympathetic to fascism as an antidote to communism, which they were terrified of. So uh, she got close to these people. She was actually probably the first person to discover that the Germans and the Soviets had made a pact uh, as, as allies. And uh, so she was quite effective. And then she later on became... Um, a fake informant to the Germans via via Dushko Popov, and you know had an affair with him and all of that. But you can read that in the book. Popov, right? And and you and Popov features in the book as this yes. Serbian agent. Uh, we did a show, Christine, about uh, young female Jewish resistance to the Gestapo, to the Nazis, who fought and many of them died uh what about in your research and in your story do many of these women actually experience frontline violence or are they always involved in some sort of espionage or counter espionage activity from london or from a place behind the lines uh it depends it depends in my books i've got the juliet code and juliet in that novel was a wireless operator who was dropped behind enemy lines in France and captured. And so she suffered from torture and, and so forth. Uh, in, in One Woman's War, there is no frontline action really because there, it's, it's an operation that was based in England, but uh, I fictionalized it a little bit because I uh, and and the people who did the Operation Mincemeat movie did this as well. You come across the the problem that once once all of the activity has happened in England and and they've sent off the the uh, the body that they want discovered by the Germans, uh, there's no conflict once that has happened. So uh, I introduced Friedel as a character. To, to sort of carry the story into the German camp. And uh, she does, she does, she is very concerned because she has to go back to Berlin and, uh, and things happen there that aren't very pleasant. We did a show uh, uh, actually a couple of days ago with a popular American writer, Anne Hood. She writes about her life as an airline stewardess in the 1970s, it's a nostalgic book. It's called Fly Girl, a memoir. And she acknowledges that she's nostalgic for that world where airline stewardesses wore high heels, were presented very sexually. Um, and that was a world where there was clearly demarcated lines between men and women. Um, are you nostalgic uh, in your own way, uh, Christine, for the world of Miss Moneypenny, either the fictional or non-fictional world where the world of men and the world of women was very different? Oh, I think you'd have to be very romantic to have nostalgia for for that. I, I, I feel that we've exchanged maybe some courtesies and some considerations for a much 
better world. It's not perfect yet, of course, but uh, I, I love I love the the glamour and the the fashions, and they're all going to nightclubs. I mean, you know, my version of this war is not a bleak version. It's more these, uh, you know, you read about the debutantes of, of London and they were all kicking up their heels and spending the whole night at nightclubs and then going back to very serious work the next day. And I, I hope I have portrayed it as, yes, there was glamour, yes, there was a serious side to it, but you you find that people in desperate situations do use humour to alleviate it and and that shows through in my books. I don't think that personally I would like to go back and live there because, I mean, I worked in the, in the 90s in a law firm and that was quite enough <laughs> of that kind of behaviour. I can't imagine what it would have been like for Patty, but uh, luckily Patty was very forthright and very uh, no-nonsense and she didn't put up with any of any of that. But Yeah, I mean, she's certainly a very tough woman you present to and very savvy uh, Miss Moneypenny also comes across a little bit like that, I guess, in the Bond films. Here, here we have an image of her from You Only Live uh, Twice when she's played by Lois Maxwell. Is the Miss Moneypenny in the Bond films, is she in any way like the real Miss Moneypenny? Uh, I don't think so. I think, well, different actresses have played her differently. Lois Maxwell was always sort of mooning over James and and sort of flirting with him and I don't think Patty would have done that at all although she did accept silk stockings and lipsticks from him so <laughs> I think uh, she wasn't above a, a little bit of give and take but uh, I think Samantha Bond might have been closest you know very matter of fact very pursing the lips at his behavior uh, and uh, that would have been more what Patty would have done I think there was a in the books, I think she's a little bit different. She doesn't appear very much in Casino Royale, but I love this quote. Uh, it's something like, um, Miss Moneypenny would have been alluring, but for a, a gaze that was direct and cool and quizzical. And I, I feel like that's more Patty. The movies I uh, mentioned them earlier, they become increasingly, I wouldn't say feminist, but certainly less sexist, less classic um, Ian Fleming. Uh, and of course, in 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 several of the recent ones featuring Daniel Craig, M, his boss, has turned out to be a woman. What do you think the real Mon Miss Moneypenny would have thought of that? I think she would have liked it. Uh, she was actually around for that, so I would have loved to have have seen what she did think. Uh, yeah, when she did she die? Tell tell me. Uh... I, th I might be wrong, but I think it was two thousand and five. Mm. I haven't looked at that for a while. Uh, but she was actually photographed with Lois Maxwell when she got her uh, the dame of the British Empire. Did she sort of dine out as the real Miss Moneypenny? Oh, I think she she was interviewed a few times in the newspapers and uh, she, she sort of scoffed and said that Fleming would have liked to have thought he was Bond. I don't know if she dined out on it, but she certainly didn't, didn't uh, deny the, the charge. <laughs> what do, you I think, uh, do you think that there may have been an element of jealousy on the part of Anne Fleming, uh, Fleming's much, much suffering wife? 
Oh, gosh, I think Anne gave as good as she got, to be quite honest. Uh, yeah, she yeah, wasn't a shrinking violet. Uh, no, I, I think Anne would have thought, thought nothing of, of some secretary in, uh, in the office. I think she would have been quite confident enough not to be jealous of Patty. Bond in some of the movies was married to, a, of course, a, an Italian contessa. What do you make of that? And, and what are your favourite Bond films? Uh, I think, yeah, the, the, the marriage was actually, and of course it's a spoiler, but obviously it's an old movie. Uh, she actually gets killed as soon as they get married. And that is obviously for Bond that has to happen because he can't have a happy family yeah, life. He can't settle down. If yeah. he settles down, he's no longer James Bond. Yes. But uh, actually I won't spoil the book but Fleming did have a personal tragedy a little bit like that so uh it's thought that perhaps that tragedy informed his writing about about Tracy's death and I, I must admit I read these books many years ago and haven't gone back to read any but Casino Royale at this stage but I would like to see how he did that because knowing what I know about his real life uh, it, it would be interesting to see how he treated that. As somebody said, the trouble with Fleming is you have to die before he knows he cares. <laughs> mm. uh, as for, for movies, I really liked the Daniel Craig Casino Royale. I, I saw that as a bit of a, a renaissance and a bit of a date. And he's still this hard... Uh, competent spy, but he's got a backstory and he's got, uh, as you said, Judy Dench played M and that was actually based down to the clothing on the real uh, intelligence officer who headed up MI5 uh, at, you know, around that time, Stella Remington. So, yeah, mm. well, that was based on real, real life. Um. Christine, you're, of course, Australian, talking to me from Brisbane. Uh, the Australians tend to have perhaps the sharpest and maybe the most perceptive take on Britain, on its absurdities, <laughs> on its frailties. Um, I mean, the, all this stuff, especially given what's happening in England today, the sort of the, the, the perpetual crisis, the absurdity of politics, the decline of its economics, the whole Brexit fiasco, um, to, to what extent is this focus on Britain in the war and its glamorous aristocracy and its beautiful women and its brave men, to what extent is this just absurd fiction? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just, uh, I suppose it is a bit nostalgic to think of Britain in, in the height of its powers in a way uh obviously the americans came in and saved the day pretty much but the british and the russians christine don't forget about yes, them yes 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 uh yeah so but they battled on along pretty much on their own and and showed incredible courage and i i just think that's amazingly admirable i don't know what's going on with you guys at the moment <laughs> Don't but, blame me. I'm, you, I live in California. Uh, oh, yes, and, of course. And yes. Some people might say, Christine, well, 
Couldn't you have found an Australian Miss Moneypenny and an Australian James Bond? Why focus on the Brits? Uh, that is a good question. I actually publish a first with, uh, with the New York publisher. And so my focus is more international than Australian. Uh, the, the Americans actually often don't tend to be as interested in Australian stories. If I can find some, like Nancy Wake, obviously, is the, the, the Australian that I would have chosen to write about, but other people have written about her recently. And, and so she was a little bit off the table as far as uh, intelligence goes. But you're right, that is an area that I should explore more. It's just that these stories are the ones that tend to be of interest to the American audience that I, that I uh, am writing for primarily. Do you think that novelists have more or less freedom when it comes to writing these kinds of books? As I said, we did a show with Damien Lewis he has this remarkable book out very successful agent Josephine American beauty French hero British spy um, which has actually done extremely well it's 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 non-fiction for you as a as a fiction writer does that give you more or less freedom I think it gives you the freedom to focus on women whose stories weren't told very in much depth in nonfiction works and in uh, newspapers and so forth. Because, uh, uh, for example, the last book I did was Sisters of the Resistance, which featured, although was not, she wasn't the protagonist, but it was about Catherine Dior. Mm. And, and it goes nicely was, with uh, the Coco Chanel stuff that I, we did. Yes, yes. Uh, and so, of course, she was the sister of Christian Dior, but she was a war heroine in her own right and worked for the French resistance. But there is very little written about her. And in fact, uh, there was a nonfiction book that came out about her. And a lot of it was more about, you know, the, the mystique of of Miss Dior and, and the perfume and the fashions and uh, because she didn't talk about her experience and everybody else from her circuit pretty much was killed, executed by the Nazis. So in fiction, you can imagine around that and try to bring these people to light who really can't sustain a book on their own because there, there's nothing about them that you can find. Well, good stuff from Christine Wells, the author of One Woman's War, the novel of the real Miss Moneypenny, based on, based on truth, not quite true, but close to it. Congratulations, Christine, on the new book. What other books would you suggest our, our viewers, our audience should read to keep themselves amused, educated, or awake? Ah, well, I do have several suggestions, but I'll do two. Uh, Mick Heron, uh, I don't know if you've read his books, the, no. the, uh, the Slow Horses series. So it's about a bunch of MI5 misfits. Mm. They're all rejects from MI5 and they are stuck in Slough. Uh, in this place called Slough that, House. Yeah, Slough. And, it, it, yeah. it is as it sounds. <laughs> yes. So uh, they they somehow are totally dysfunctional. They're led by this absolute grub and they somehow save the day. 
and it's just this brilliant series that was made into an Apple TV uh, series, which I have not seen yet. But yeah, maybe um, they should have uh, called it Grubs in Slough. <laughs> yes, well, I I love that, and I I just devour every book as soon as it comes out. Uh, and then the other one that is actually a good companion to my book. Uh, it's called The Crimson Thread by Kate Forsyth. And as she points out, uh, it's set in Crete and what Kate does is she takes a myth or a fairy tale and brings it into a historical context. So this is Crete in World War II. And as she pointed out, the Operation Mincemeat objective was to divert attention from Sicily where the Allies were going to invade to Greece and the, the resulting transfer of German troops to Greece and Crete really had a significant effect on the population there. So really you could read our books together and say, well, this was the other side of the coin. You know, they saved many lives by misdirecting the Germans, but of course there was suffering on the Greek side because of it. 